Hello, everyone. Thursday, November 10. Another day in paradise. Got a terrific room today. Bob Elliott, who's a relative newcomer to the scene as far as Twitter goes, and he's made quite a splash in the last few months. Bob and I spoke the other day. Um, I'm, he's a must-follow. Really like the way he thinks. Got a wealth of experience, and he's here to share his wisdom with us today. First, um, continuing with our newly adopted tradition of uh, this day in history. November 10th, 1775. Three things. November 10th, 1775. Believe it or not, that was the birth of the U.S. Marine Corps. November 10th, 1942. The Germans took Vichy, France. And then finally... And most recently, November 10th, where did it go here? 1969, Sesame Street made its debut. Man, I'm dating myself. November 10th, 1969. There you go. So let's get into it. Today was certainly a uh, interesting day, put it mildly, as far as markets are concerned. Bob, really good to uh, have you here. Um, you and I were chatting the other day, and I think... Uh, we have, you know, a lot of uh, interesting thoughts about uh, markets. I think we probably agree on more things than we don't. Let's not let's talk and uh, become an, an echo chamber. I'm sure it won't be. But, uh, Bob, maybe you just might just give us just a little bit about your background. Um, like I said, you're a relative newbie to Twitter, and you made quite a splash. I really enjoyed reading your uh, posts. So maybe just tell us a little, about your, a little bit about yourself and your career. Bob, over to you. Hey, for sure. Thank you so much for for having me. Uh, uh, as you as you mentioned, I'm just sort of uh, just sort of getting started uh, on, in the Twitter world uh, the last couple of months, and so uh, you know, certainly appreciate you uh, letting me join you and and uh, and chat. My background is uh, basically 20 years as a systematic investor. I was uh, at Bridgewater Associates. Uh, for just under 15 years, um, where I was uh, on the investment committee and a senior executive there, uh, created systematic strategies across all the different various asset classes, including many of which uh, were are are in the flagship Pure Alpha Fund, um, and also uh, was basically Ray Dalio's right hand man for 10 years. Uh, sort of all the stuff that he was doing, building and running his investment research team. Um, left there in 2018, ran a $125 million systematic venture capital business, uh, which uh, invested in uh, high potential early stage consumer oppor opportunities using big data. So think about systematic investing for the private side of the world. Uh, and then um, and then about, uh, about a year ago, um, sort of recognized, recognizing that the world of sort of two and 20 investing is great for the manager, not so great for the investor, sort of thinking hard about whether there was a way to create low cost index products for two and 20 strategies like hedge funds, venture capital, et cetera, uh, in a, in a sort of low cost in index ETF sort of structure. Uh, and that's really, uh, that's what I've been working on for the last year. Uh, and is the foundation of Unlimited, um, where we're, we're building those uh, structures using technology to infer what managers are doing at any point in time. Our first product 
is the uh, HFND ETF, which launched uh, just over, uh, actually almost exactly a month ago. Uh, we're, we're a month in, um, which uh, seeks to replicate the gross of fees returns of the hedge fund industry at a much lower fee structure. So basically a way to for the everyday investor to access the type of diversified uh, hedge fund strategy returns uh, that um, typically only the biggest, most sophisticated institutions can access. Uh, and so that's what, you know, that's, that's sort of the day job and still love macro and still love markets. And so, uh, you know, as I'm, I'm, as I'm thinking about the world, putting it out there and, and uh, excited to talk about it. Thanks for that, Bob. It's terrific. So let's get into it. Um, I'm going to start um, with one of your tweets. A tweet from earlier today. I have sympathy. Uh, no, don't. No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not hanging you out here. Um, I happen to agree with it. Um, although didn't get paid for this view today. In fact, I got pretty destroyed. But whatever. Um, I quote: "Inflation is too high. It is widespread and is not likely to come down toward the Fed's target of two percent anytime soon." Um, you want to elaborate on that a little bit? I'm just teeing it up. T-ball time. So just, just go for it. Yeah, I mean, I think when you when you look at um, when you take a step back and you look at what's going on across the U.S. economy, we've really transitioned. We've transitioned meaningfully from a period, you know, of frankly like forty years where, by and large, nobody worried too much about inflation. It wasn't really in the mindset of the everyday consumer. It wasn't really in the mindset of the person negotiating their wages. It wasn't in contracts. It wasn't, it was, it, it, it really, it was sort of taken for granted that we would be in a world of low, stable inflation in the future. And, you know, the, a combination of factors, both on a secular basis with the, you know, the end of the globalization, the disinflationary push combined with, you know, cyclical dynamics and, probably over, you know, almost certainly overdone uh, fiscal and monetary stimulation post-COVID has, you know, created basically a total shift in terms of the inflationary environment that we are in, where, um, where inflation has gone, has, has transitioned. The, The transitory nature of inflation has been that it has transitioned from something that no one is, no one's worried about to something that people are are constantly thinking about, um, and and today is such a good example of that. That a CPI, a monthly CPI number, you know, which has all the caveats of any particular monthly economic stat, is something that moves markets. I mean, effectively, you know, seven or eight hundred basis points if you take the being down yesterday to to. You know, and then and then up in terms of how people positioned, and so you know this this is like something that that is on the mindset of every investor, on every the mindset of every consumer, and and that is a very different structure of the macro economy and of the financial markets than basically anything that we've seen uh, in the last forty years, and personally, you know, and and more so than you know certainly different from what the vast, vast majority of investors today have thought about. And so when you get a level deeper, what you see 
like comments like it's only owner's equivalent rent or it's only this or it's only that. It's not really true. Their inflation has permeated everything. And of course, there's nuances about exactly how the wiggle of the used car market is going or, you know, medical, uh, medical inflation or you know, all sorts of nuanced points, which everyone will try and sort of boil down to and try and sort of tweak in in favor of their underlying book. But I think the core of it is like is recognizing like inflation is too high. I mean, even today's print, which is uh, frankly the the best possible outcome that uh, that the Fed could have ever gotten was still, you know, in the threes month over month annualized and still, you know, seven seven in the sevens, the high sevens on a year over year basis. Like that is too high. Um, and it is too broad in terms of affecting a broad set of, uh, uh, of different sectors of the economy. And it's not just an energy thing or not just a food issue or not just a, you know, used car issue. It is, it's kind of everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Uh, in one form or another, and and it's what's driving everything that that we're doing, and that's you know that's a that's an, the fact that that is true indicates the fact that the Fed does not have inflation under control. So, Bob, um, you know the 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 the, the, um, the bullish crowd um, desperately wants to believe in threading the needle. Immaculate conception that somehow we'll have a nice slowdown, a glide path. We don't have to have a recession. People don't have to lose their jobs. And we'll create just enough slack in the economy so that, you know, you look out 12, 18 months, we'll be back. We'll be back. Dorothy, we'll be back in Kansas again. You know, we'll get inflation at 2%. And from my reading of the history books, it doesn't work that way, really. And so you're very well versed in the subject matter. Uh, probably more so than I. What's the likelihood that that we can, you know, Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold, we can thread the needle? I mean, because again, history would argue it's a very unlikely outcome. And that therefore, alternatively, what I've been believing, but kind of stupid today, a recession whereby you're freeing up the, uh, creating the slack, freeing up those resources to, uh, um, you know, in particular, with respect to wage gains, you look at the job offer to applicant ratio, you look at the unemployment rate, et cetera, et cetera. You need to create slack in order to break that. And, and right now, you know, incomes are still real income suck. But if you look at nominal, not real, you know, companies keep jacking up prices because people got money, not people to low end of the socioeconomic strata, but people have money. And yep. so and so the way I think about it and, and I'm, I have this I have this weakness. I'm logical. I say to myself, okay, you need to have a recession. You got to attack corporate profit margins to free up the slack on the wage side. There's no other way for you. You can't get around that. And therefore, if that's true, and then I, tra- I, I morph into my view of the market and, you know, look at valuation, all these left brain concepts. And you plug in, you know, put it whatever number you want, 180 bucks in SP earnings last year with the market at 3,800. I mean, <laughs> that doesn't sound good to me. So uh, attack or but agree with any part of that you want. Well, I think I, you know, my my overall framework, and I think uh, a history-based macroeconomic framework 
aligns quite, um, you know, aligns pretty well with what you're saying in the sense of um, we have, you know, in many ways, while it's been a bit unusual how we've gotten here in, in the sense of like the combination of the rolling off of secular forces and the massive fiscal and monetary stimulation, like those things are not that common in terms of if you look through history, what we have, they, what they engendered or what they created was, uh, you know, a high level of nominal demand uh, against an economy that is running at, a, you know, at potential and running very, very hot or, or, or very tight. And that that, is, that circumstance is a very normal circumstance if you look back through history and you look through cycles and, a, you know, a, a traditional inflationary dynamic, inflationary cycle has a very typical way that it plays out, which is that the Fed, you know, the Fed comes in and tightens. And then what happens is that tightening affects credit and asset prices and demand. And eventually that decline in demand then flows through to corporate profits and hiring, which flows through to a slowing of wages, which hits the hits the demand. And so that's how, and then eventually hits the prices, right? That's how that, that cycle works. And so if, if you think about where we are in that cycle, you'd sort of, you'd look at that and you'd say, man, it seems like we're really early in that cycle, right? Because nominal demand has, has been, like it was scorching hot in 2021. And a lot of people will sit there and say, well, it's, it's down from 2021. It's like, yeah, it's down from totally insane nominal demand to in, instead very, very high nominal demand. That's, that's, the, that's where we are right now. Very elevated nominal demand relative to history. And frankly, there hasn't been enough monetary tightening for long enough is probably what I should say in the context of 15 years of unbridled monetary stimulation. There hasn't been enough tightening for long enough to start to change that overall dynamic that, uh, you know, that nominal demand is high and that, um, and that the economy is running hot. Because if you really look at what's going on with the, the economy in terms of running hot, growth maybe has slowed a little bit, although the, frankly, the Atlanta Fed measure for real growth looks like about as hot as you could ever expect it to be. Um, but like maybe growth has softened a tad, but the level like in jobless claims and just the sort of core structural production, industrial production, capacity utilization, utilization, um, jobs, all of that sort of those capacity measures were still running very, very, very high. And so from that perspective, it's like, it feels like we're in the second inning of this, of this dynamic. We're just getting started in terms of moving the macro economy from an, a period of inflationary expansion to one of necessary contraction to bring inflation down. So that that is that is sort of my my sort of go-to in terms of how I would typically connect these things, these these dynamics that we're seeing in that sort of tr traditional cyclical way. I think the question that we're all have to wrestle with is there is a bit of an odd set of dynamics sort of underlying that traditional dynamic that basically says that that's that's a function of 
of an unusual set of circumstances with COVID happening and then unwinding and the supply shocks that came from that, which, which elevated prices, which are then getting resolved, which is, you know, putting a drag on prices. And so there's sort of that underlying sort of mini cycle behind this bigger macro cycle uh, of a traditional inflationary dynamic that it's possible we're, we're getting confused on, I think, I, I, I wonder um, whether, you know, we see something that's happening today and it, it's a bit of a, what looks like a product of some of the, the disinflationary dynamics look, if you look under the hood, kind of look like a little bit of the unwinding of some of the, the COVID related dynamics. And that's a disinflationary force but then you look to other things like wages and jobs and all that stuff, and it still seems like it's relatively strong inflationary force. And so, you know, it's, it's neither a classic cycle nor just a COVID situation. It's kind of both. And weighing those things is the real ambiguous question in the market. So, Bob, how would you um... – how, how do you think about the level of interest rates – you look at real rates, and they're still decidedly negative. And the history is that, again, I think maybe only with one exception, I don't know, you know better than I. History, every one of these cycles is pretty much you got to raise nominal rates to a level you have positive real rates. And, you know, Powell even talked about this a couple months ago, real rates up and down the yield curve. And we don't have that. And so one could argue, give me the pushback, one could argue we're still pursuing a pretty stimulative policy. Yes, the interest-sensitive parts of the economy are getting whacked. Housing's falling off a cliff. But, you know, the rest of it, consumption is still pretty buoyant. Um, people are people got a lot of money and they're spending it. And so how do you think about where rates <clears throat> have to go? What's the terminal rate? Because think about this for a second. <clears throat> As you rightly point out, we're in a very unusual period of time. Go back in the way back machine to the first of the year when the tenure was around 150 or something like that. I rather suspect if <coughs> we all had been told, let me put it another way, the narrative then was rates can't go up very much because if they do, the whole system's levered and it's going to blow up. Something's going to break. They said that at 150, they said that at 250, you know, on and on. Here we are. Okay, yields came down a lot today. We're 381 in the 10 years we speak having been at, what, 420, 430 at the peak. <clears throat> and nothing's really broken yet. Okay, the UK pension funds had a little problem. But you look at spreads, you know, you look at high yield, the HYG, it's basically just the duration piece of that, which has caused that to go down. Spreads, well, they're up. They're nowhere compared to where they usually peak. And so I guess the question I ask you, I'm on a ramble here, but I want to contextualize the question. Just as rates have gone up a lot more than most would have expected, if you go back to the turn of the year, and it has not resulted in a recession yet, what's the likelihood, if you think about the dynamics about why that's happening, what's the likelihood that, you know, rates could still go up for further and longer than most people imagine, and it's going to take, you know, a higher terminal rate to, to, to really bring on the recession. And on the way to the bank, what that means for asset prices you know, looking within the equity market, what it means for equities, what it means for bonds, what it means for the rotation in the equity market, 
long duration versus short duration, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm putting a lot of meat on the bone here. So I don't know what part of that you want to respond to, but, <laughs> but, 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 but I think that's caught a lot of people out. Yeah. I, I, I've been talking uh, for the last couple of months, just talking a lot about how, uh, how insulated the U S economy has become to rising rates in general. And part of that is a function of um, an explicit set of efforts from financial regulators and others post GFC to uh, reduce rate sensitivity, to extend duration, to increase capital, all of those different uh, underlying dynamics. Um, Part of it is frankly a function of the 15 years of unbridled monetary stimulation where everyone took advantage of that to put themselves in a very good position, extended duration, extended, extended duration on their liabilities, I should say, in terms of, you know, households moving into 30-year fixed mortgages basically entirely versus at the beginning, you know, 15 years ago, there were a lot of floaters or, you know, businesses, particularly IG businesses, issuing very, very long duration bonds and basically pushing out all of their their borrowing needs for an extended period of time um, or households, you know, refinancing at 2% or 2 or 3%, the vast, vast majority of households are locked into these low value, low interest rate mortgages. And so as long as they don't move, they're basically in good shape. They don't have to worry too much about it. Movers aren't a big portion of the market. Um, and even the government, the federal government has, very, you know, in general, quite long duration, low interest costs, you know, uh, as well that they were able to achieve a little bit of more short end sensitivity than some of these other sectors. But the big picture point is like, this is a, this is an economy that is really purposefully over the court purposefully. And as a function of easy monetary policy, radically reduced its sensitivity to short to, to, to interest rate moves in general, and then to the short end in particular. And so, um, and so what we're seeing here is frankly a, a pretty challenging uh, pass-through for the Fed in terms of their monetary policy. Like, as an example, in Australia, when RBA raises its interest rate, you know, 50 basis points, like the next month, all the mortgage borrowers pay 50 more basis points on their mortgages. Like, that is a very direct translation. Here in the U.S., the Fed could raise interest rates 100 basis points and say you're a regular household bar, you know, you're just a regular old household, you own your house, you make an income, et cetera, et cetera. Like, how does that really change your behavior? Like, it doesn't change your ability to borrow and it, you're, you pay the same interest rate on your mortgage, et cetera. It's just like nothing happens to you. And and I think that's actually, like, if you go back, I think the the 50s and 60s are, are a fascinating time when you kind of get into the mindset of how the machine works because it's almost like yes i understand there's a lot of debt levels that are out there but we've insulated the economy so much that it's almost it's almost like we're in we're an old school economy um in in some ways in terms of our responsiveness to interest rates and in those dynamics like in order to successfully slow down demand it's not raising interest rates to slow credit creation which is how it has been in the last 
30 or 40 years, which then creates the turn of the cycle, because by and large, there's not that much frothy borrowing that was going on. You have to raise interest rates enough to affect asset prices, but a lot of the companies are in pretty good shape. And so, you know, it's not really affecting the asset prices as much as you want, other than the discount rate. So then you have to raise the, the, the interest rate even more to the point where basically cash looks like such a good asset relative to other assets. And, and probably most importantly, from the macroeconomic standpoint, has to look like a great asset relative to going and buying stuff or buying services. And that is the sort of thing, that's why if you go back through time, you have to see this real positive interest rate, right? You have to, see, you know, you have, to have people starting to sit there and say, I would rather save money and get a positive real interest rate over time than go out and spend. And when you think about that in today's context, like cash looks pretty good, you know, cash looks a, like a good alternative to maybe long end bonds in terms of like, you know, you're getting the same yield and one has volatility and one doesn't. Cash might look good relative to stocks, maybe, but stocks could go up. But like cash relative to going out and buying stuff, like we're a long way from that. Like you have to have real moving asset in, in cash rates to much more real cash rates, you know, real yield on cash before people are really going to start making that 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 trade-off between spending today basically versus saving today. Um, the point being to add it all up, like you really need to have the economy so insulated from the interest rates and and still the current cash rate is not tight enough to affect those other behaviors that you know, that are necessary, that you're not, you, you keep raising the interest rate and basically nothing happens, uh, you know, basically. So, so, so Bob, Bob, can we get into a phase where, you know, for years, year after year, for the longest while, we had this phenomenon whereby Wall Street um, was doing better than Main Street. Could we not be in a situation now where we have the opposite? Well, I, I, I certainly think it's, uh, I certainly think that that's possible, like, we, um, I mean, we see it, I mean, frankly, we see it, it depends on exactly what you mean by Wall Street, Main Street, but I, I think you see the dichotomy, um, oh, you know, like, uh, when you look at the country and the composition and even you look at employment and things like that, you see a real dichotomy where, like, frankly, like, who's not doing well right now in general People who, you know, where, where you're getting a little softening of the labor markets and you're getting, um, you know, some, you're getting some weakness. Like it's pretty concentrated in tech, uh, very concentrated in tech in New York and San Francisco, uh, in New York and San Francisco areas and, and like venture capital firms and like, you know, garbage you know, uh, unprofitable startup tech companies. And like those, those folks like get a lot of, you know, they're like connected to the media and they get a lot of airtime. But like, if you're, you know, driving a truck or, you know, working uh, the line in a manufacturing facility or, you know, providing uh, hospitality services in the middle of the country, like there's incredible demand there's not enough supply of there's not there's not enough labor in the market to get anywhere close to the 
the needs. And it's like an incredibly tight labor market that's going very well. And so I think what we're seeing is we're seeing uh, a diverging economy uh, between the highly financialized, dependent on, you know, zero interest rates forever type of, you know, companies, uh, particularly venture backed, um, relative to, you know, frankly, like real, real stuff, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and, and it's not obvious that one necessarily leads to problems in the other uh, at all. Um, I, 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 I guess, I guess what I was trying to get at was you, you when, I meant, when I meant Wall Street, I, I didn't phrase the question properly. What I really should have said was those economic actors, those activities which were most reliant on and benefited from excess right. liquidity right. and the hyper-financialization of the economy. And look, the future is difficult to predict. Who knows? But I somehow suspect, and I believe you probably agree, that ain't going to happen again. <laughs> we may have some other surprises, but that ain't going to happen again. And so therefore, um, you know, you look at, you know, whether it's venture investing or private equity, you know, levering up balance sheets, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that's done. And so, so, so Bob, let's turn this a little bit. Let's turn this a little bit. Let's try these rooms to help the average person in the room who's trying to figure out how to preserve what they got and hopefully increase what they got with their portfolio. Um, you know, it's nice to push the ball back and forth on macro forecast, but let's, let's, let's distill it down to what people, which people should be doing with their money. So, you know, you're in your new fund. I know you're trying to mimic hedge fund strategies or whatever. So as you look at the world for the average guy at home, home, what would you tell them? Maybe equities, bonds, you know, commodities, cash, like, you know, what would you tell a good friend about how they should invest their money right now? Yeah. Well, I think the, the, you know, part of, part of, uh, there's sort of a core fundamental, uh, asset management concepts. And then there's, um, which are persistent through time and sort of looking at how people manage money typically relative to those core fundamental concepts. And then I think to me informed uh, in addition to looking at the most sophisticated asset managers in the world, the hedge funds, and we use technology to basically infer what they're doing. And, and that's how we run HFND, um, the positions in HFND and sort of looking at both of those lenses, looking through both of those lenses the the first thing I'd emphasize is just how much uncertainty there is in this environment. Uh, so, you know, I mean, we can see it in the volatility of the day-to-day market moves, but the reality is I think this is an environment that very few of us have lived through. There's this combination of the cyclical dynamics with the secular inflationary dynamics with COVID, which is an unusual circumstance. And so you sort of have this intersection of all these things. And, you know, if we look at what hedge fund managers are doing, they're basically as conservative as they have, they've been at all in the last 20, 25 years. And so, you know, I take, um, I take some comfort in that to say, you know, it's okay not to run your, your highest level risk. It's okay to sit there and look at, you know, short ended tips and say, hey, look, that's you know, that's that's an okay asset to hold right now, and don't get too stressed about it. Particularly if you're looking at people 
who are, you know, getting closer to retirement and things like that, like you, you gotta be looking at cash. Right. But, and, and I think tips are, are a good alternative, short end tips are a good alternative to nominal cash, but you gotta be looking there. So anyway, that's, that's a general point. I think, you know, take or leave run at lower risk than you would typically hold more cash. I think in terms of the assets that you're holding, I think this is a, we've all learned that the, there have been a lot of people talking for a long time about how 60-40 doesn't work. You, you learned your lesson here. You know, I think that that's, uh, that was a tough lesson for a lot of people. In particular, when you think about how most asset, most investors are positioned, they are positioned with a huge short position in inflation in the sense of a huge position expecting or betting on inflation to come in lower than what, how it's currently priced and both because of their financial assets and stocks and bonds and also because they spend money on things, which means that, you know, inflation is hurting them. And so I think for the vast majority of investors, what they should be thinking about is how do you increase your inflation sensitive assets, uh, commodities, gold tips, all those different assets are things that basically no one's ever thought of before, you know, cause when 60, 40 is doing well, you don't really think about it. And in an inflationary cycle, that's really, you got to really start thinking about those types of assets to complement your portfolio. And when we look at what hedge fund managers are doing, we actually see them basically as long gold, uh, which I, I wrote, a, I wrote a, a, a long piece about how to think about gold in your portfolio, which uh, I'll, I'll post in here, but it's, a, you know, it, it's an important asset to be thinking about from a st- strategic asset allocation. Um, and, uh, and commodity positions, we see sophisticated asset managers basically through the course of this year hold, ha, held the biggest positions in commodities that they have in 25 years as well. And so, you know, and most investors don't have anything. So. Um, and then I think on the margin, you know, there's, there's other ways in which you can be a little bit more conservative if, if you want to take a little risk off the table but still stay invested. So tilting towards, you know, value oriented sectors rather than growth, which we see, you know, as a important component of what hedge fund managers are doing or, um, or maybe looking to spaces in the credit market to take advantage of the fact that the company's balance sheets are in pretty good shape, even though their earnings might not be as, as good in the future um, as well as a, as a way to shift sort of your, your company risk to be, a little more conservative. So anyway, you, what you hear from me is basically a whole series of different thoughts about how to be more conservative about your asset allocation in and more diversified in an environment of great uncertainty. So, 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 so Bob, the usual uh, pat answer that, you know, uh, big financial services firms will give, it should be an in index funds or in a 60, 40 portfolio, blah, 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 blah. I mean, again, Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore. We're in a different regime. So it seemed to me like, before I, before I say it, I want to be as far away from that as possible. Would you concur with that? Well, I, I mean, it sounds like you're pro. No, so, no, I, I think I, you, you, um, you, you triggered another thought in my mind, which is it is also an important time to look for for good alpha. This is the, is the reality. Like, um when everything's going up and index funds basically give you everything you need, then, you know, no need to look around for alpha when times are tough. Alpha 
can, if you can find it, if you can find good managers that can deliver, you know, good alpha, it's a great opportunity to, uh, to invest in those sorts of, of assets to help you navigate through it. Because no matter what, an individual investor just can't bring to bear the type of, frankly, money and expertise and skill set the way that, you know, a sophisticated asset manager can bring to the table. And, you know, the thing, if you look back through time, the times when sophisticated asset managers like hedge funds and others typically really differentiate themselves are times, are, are during these down periods. And they differentiate themselves not from generating extraordinary returns in downtimes. They, gener- they, they differentiate themselves from simply preserving capital more efficiently than, you know, holding index funds. And over the long term, you know, that's a big, that's a big deal. Like downside volatility drag is real. And so part of what you want to find is the, are the, are the investors that can, that have that track record of navigating downturns prudently in order to help limit your, your, your losses to the downside. Um, and that is not 60-40. That is not just buy 60-40 and move on. I don't know. I was reading something earlier today about how one of those big brokerage houses or wirehouses was just saying, well, you know, you don't just uh, let's just get back to 60-40. It'll be fine next year. And that, yeah, that right, sounds exactly. crazy to me. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, no, honestly, they, just sound the, the, the living with living was good. Times are easy. Right. So, Bob, uh, I want to go to some questions yeah, from the please. audience. But I got one more for you. I got plenty more, but I got one more. So hallucinate for a little bit, freebase for a little bit about sort of your views on equities. Um, you know, I infer from your from reading your stuff that you're negative. I don't put words in your mouth, but, you know, as you look at it over the next year, I mean, you know, I have a very dim view of, uh, of, of equity markets. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What's your own take? Like, where do you think the market could go? I mean, again, as you know, as Yogi Bear famously once said, you know, predictions are difficult, especially about the future. But if a friend was asking, hey, you know, what do you think the market's going to do or what do you like in the market? What would you tell him? Yeah, I, I think equities, like if you go back to that macroeconomic cycle and how you break the inflationary dynamic which you know, we could argue about exactly how entrenched it is, but there is an, in, an inflationary dynamic going on in the economy uh, in an environment where interest rates aren't meaningfully affecting credit creation. Uh, you've got to do it through the asset prices and the way you do it through the asset prices. I mean, most people are sensitive to houses and stocks. Houses don't move that fast. Stocks move faster. You got to bring stocks down in order. You got to bring stocks down in order to limit demand, in order to get the reduction in earnings, in order to get the reduction in labor, in order to get the easing of wage pressures, right? That's that's how that cycle works. And that's the lever. That's the primary lever, the asset economy lever that the Fed can use, given the structure of the U.S. economy as it stands today. So, you know, that if we're going to go through that path, the question is sort of how much of that do we have to ease off? in order, you know, how much weakening of the asset markets do we have to have in order to slow demand, in order to ease inflationary pressures? You know, it doesn't look good. Frankly, it doesn't look good for stocks in a sense of like, if I had to, you know, point where 
where we're going to go. Will there, you know, as an example, like, will there probably be a bottom that is meaningfully lower than where we are today? Probably, very likely. The trouble is, very likely, I'd say. And so I, I'm sympathetic to that view. And then the, the bigger question, the more challenging question is navigating ourselves to that point where there can be a lot of chop along the way and a lot, you know, there could be a chop, a lot of chop along the way where at least, you know, we've seen a little bit of the, the equity sweet spot, so to speak, a little bit more last quarter than this quarter where, you know, high inflation and negative real wage growth is actually not beneficial to equities. And so that's a, that's a dynamic that, you know, has kept equities from falling more than you might expect otherwise, because the top line has benefited from, the inflationary pressures and uh, and wages are moving up, but they're not moving up fast enough to, to offset that top line gain. And so, you know, it's kind of like we're in this period where the companies kind of look okay because demand hasn't fallen. And so, and earnings haven't really fallen. That just kind of puttered a little bit. Um, and we kind of know where we need to go. What did I say? I said 3000 of the S and P 500 seems very reasonable What's that? Fifteen times at two hundred. That seems like a totally plausible endpoint, but it's it's a challenge. <laughs> it's a challenge to get to where we're going. Uh, so in that sense, but, 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 yeah, but, Bob, one follow up, and then we're going to go yeah, to yeah, Gnostic and Wesley. Let's argue, lest we fall into the depths of an echo chamber. Let me be uh, let me be annoying. Can you make a credible case for the null hypothesis? that you're too bearish and I'm too bearish. I mean, you can make a case, but how likely is it? If you had to say, hey, you know, if, if a year from now we do another space and we look back on November 10th, 2022, and we're like, man, did we get that wrong? Like, what do you think the most likely scenario would be by which we got it wrong? Well, I think the big question, the, the big, big question here is, is there, uh, dis, is there disinflationary supply shocks kind of overstated i don't think we need a huge shock but like is there enough disinflate disinflationary supply side elements that cause a uh, a decline in inflation and it, and with it all the other knock-on effects of that in terms of monetary policy wages etc such that this idea that we need to tighten to break the back of the underlying inflationary dynamic that's a, that's emerging has emerged will continue like that is a that is a possible path that would lead to you know lower inflation less monetary tightening less need to drive asset prices down you know okay real growth company margins holding up like all of that which leads to you know okay stock prices Right. I mean, it's probably a little it's probably more beneficial for the bond market. That story I just said is definitely more beneficial for the bond market than it is for the stock market. But like and could we just like because we get us this, you know, just enough supply side dynamics that we that we can sort of keep the reflation game going or, or less tightening than we expected. I think that's the real you know, and what's the probability of that? It's it's not zero by any stretch. You know, um, it, it, it's it's not my, you know, mobile case by any stretch, 
but is it, it it's plausible it's possible uh that that's the the path that we go down and we just you know for those of us who sort of thought that the inflationary dynamic was emerging kind of get it wrong uh kind of get it wrong fair enough Thanks for that, Bob. Fair enough. All right, let's um, let's go to the audience. Uh, I got some more questions, but I want to mix it up a little bit. So uh, first, uh, we'll have Gnostic, and then followed by Wesley. Hey, Gnostic, good to see you. Please unmute yourself, Gnostic. What's up? Okay. Um, I, the the sixty forty scenario really is a painful scenario to look at. Two things in here, uh, and the I'll be real quick and get to the final question. Uh, I saw a report the other day about the amount of money in checking accounts, which was a fabulously large number. Um, which really kind of surprised me because nobody's really brought that up very much in all of the discussions of inflation and everything else. That kind of inoculates people against inflation and against the entire process of raising interest rates. So in, in summary, at what point is the Fed pushing on string when they increase interest rates? Well, I, I, I think they are pushing on string um, and have been pushing on string. Like, Part of the part of and 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 they've been pushing on a string like kind of in both directions in the sense of like the reason why you needed 15 years of unbridled monetary stimulation to frankly get totally mediocre growth for that period of time, basically, until, you know, until just right after COVID is because it takes a long time. You know, the the the, the pushing on asset prices and interest rates, et cetera doesn't necessarily flow through to the choice for people to go spend or save. Uh, and in the same way that it didn't really flow through that well, that effectively on the upside, I think what we're seeing is kind of the same thing on the downside, which is the economy's not that sensitive. You know, the people who, who need to do the marginal incremental spending or saving, not that sensitive to asset prices going down in the same way they weren't that sensitive to asset prices going up. And so, you know, I think there's, it, it, it is, it's the same time. It, it's a, it's a, today's pushing on a string is this, is a, is a function very much of the same pushing on a string that's existed for, you know, really post financial crisis. Okay. So the, the summary backup question to that is why, I mean, what you're basically summarizing by saying that is that this is not the interest, this is not the instrument to be using to sit down and fight this at this time. What instruments would be better instruments to sit down and deal with inflation at this time? Fiscal, monetary, uh, structural, uh, regulatory. Um, where has the failure been that's resulted in this, which would also include uh, current statistics that are being used not being accurate? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's uh, I, I think there's, there's two things. There's the, there's the um, when, when you're thinking as an investor, I think it's important to to think uh, to think carefully about what is what is plausible. There's like what would be the best, and then there's what is plausible, and what is plausible is the thing that will affect asset prices and and the macro economy, um, uh, even though you might think that other things are best. And so, you know, when I look at it, like functionally, the um, the tools, I mean, you basically outline the tools. There's monetary policy, there's fiscal policy, and there's regulatory constraints, basically. Um, monetary policy can move fast, you know, all things considered, and is can be used in relatively large size, uh, all things considered. 
fiscal policy is, you know, certainly as we transition to a more divided government uh, is going to be more challenging. And on top of it, like contractionary fiscal policy is very hard to achieve in basically any circumstance. Uh, and so I wouldn't really rely on that to be a big dynamic, even though probably fiscal policy from a, from a lever perspective is in the same way it was highly effective at inflating the economy would be highly effective at, uh, at, at, uh, at weakening the economy if we could, you know, meaningfully suck demand out of the system, but it's not going to happen. Uh, and then there's the regulatory side, which I think if you think about the fact that at least some amount of this dynamic is a supply side issue uh, and a function of the challenges of, you know, restitching together uh, uh, supply chains in the context of a, of a deglobalization economy, you know, on the margin incentivizing people through regulatory uh, means, whether it's through the production of, you know, fossil fuels or commodities or, or through the production of other, productive capacity in the United States would be beneficial, but ooh, it takes a long time. <laughs> you know, it's just, it just, I mean, how long does it take to get a pipeline going or the drilling or all of it? Just, it takes forever. It's not going to, it's not going to solve the problem on the timeline that is necessary, that is consistent with what the Fed's mandate is. And so that's why when you go through, you check through these boxes, there are levers that would be more effective, but they're not going to be used meaningfully. And so really it just comes back to monetary policy, which is frankly kind of how it's been for a long time, <laughs> which is why the Fed has had to over monetary policy, the economy relative to, I think, what good would look like. But, hey, good is not how we're not going to we're not going to get good. Th th thanks for that question, Gnostic. Let's keep going here. Uh, we're going to go to Wesley and then uh, Jeff Garbaz and then Bob Klein. Uh, Wesley, uh, floor is yours. Please unmute yourself. Hey, Bob. I was uh, wondering if you had any thoughts or uh, predictions or what you're kind of looking for in regards to an, uh, potentially the next major catalyst uh, to support uh, a rebound, uh, the next bull market, et cetera. Uh, for example, you know, there was a lot of talk about the election and congressional gridlock uh, being good for markets. So there's kind of a run up uh, into the elections in anticipation of that. Just wondering and curious outside of inflation abetting. Uh, what you might be looking for uh, to be a potential next big catalyst? Well, I think, uh, I mean, the, when you first asked the question, the first thing that went to my mind was something resolving the inflation problem or, or, or uh, limiting the risk, the risks associated with, uh, you know, the, the evolving or evolution or creation of an inflationary mindset. Um, if I'm looking to things that are beyond that, you know, I guess the questions that come to my mind, which are somewhat related to the supply side constraints are, um, you know, is there something that's going to shift the globalization dynamic to make it more positive, meaningfully more positive than, you know, at least how it looks right now. I don't, you know, Right now, what it looks like is we're going to, you know, for the next two decades, like unwind so much of the integration and globalization that we did over the course of the, you know, over the course of the last 20 years post China going to the WTO, et cetera, and Russia coming, you know, coming to the West. And it looks like we're going to basically unwind a lot of that. 
Um, I could see a catalyst recognizing in the event that we sort of figure out a way that we're not on that path. And that could be a positive catalyst for, because uh, it would both affect inflation, but also, you know, all the various uh, dynamics with companies. And so, you know, possibly does that spark a, or, or reignite a view of positive productivity conditions for, for the global economy. I, I think that, that that's possible. I, I probably would bet on it. I also don't know if anything, I think probably the risk is that the equity market is, is not really priced in much of that dynamic in the way that it needs to be um, given just how buoyant a pressure it was for so long. It was almost so, so, yeah, insidious in terms of supportive of equities that we don't even really appreciate how important it was over the previous 20 years and probably are underpricing it, uh, it right now rather than than uh, than overpricing that risk. Anyway, that's the thing that occurs to me. I don't know if that's helpful at all. But. Yeah, that's helpful. I, I just kind of I my my personal opinion, um, I, I kind of have a bearish outlook over the next year as the Fed. Uh, continues to control the market with their interest rate increases. And I was just wondering if I was possibly missing any future um, big events that could uh, disrupt that expectation to the upside. But it sounds like really, you know, we're kind of in agreement that it, it ultimately comes down to inflation and uh, and how the Fed responds and central banks respond to that. Thanks, thanks, thanks for the question, Wes. Appreciate it. Um... Let's move on here. Uh, good friend of the of the room, good personal friend, not a long time. Smart cookie, Jeff Garbaz. Good to see you, Jeff. What's on your mind? Hey, George. I think I think you actually asked one of the best questions I've heard anyone ask in a long time, <clears throat> at least in the last month or so, where you said, "Hey, what would cause what I'm thinking a bearish?" And it was kind of intimated in terms of a bearish um, bet on the market between. November 11th of 2022 and 2023. And I think this relates to the whole idea of whether it's you running an ETF, someone running a hedge fund, someone running a long and book or their own personal portfolio, everyone should have what I call a playbook to assess um, what, the, what caused a, a, a theme to fall apart and either to work or not work and be constantly looking at those. So I kind of wrote down a few things um, just in general, like what could cause the bear market to not work over the next year? And then uh, just to, just giving these out, they're very simple and they're very obvious. Actually, Tom Thornton did a great job this couple of days ago hitting on two of them. The first one was Russia-Ukraine war ends. Obviously, that could change the outlook very quickly. Second was China returns uh, to, an, uh, to normal. They enact a zero COVID policy. We've been kind of hearing, yes, they're going to do it. No, they aren't going to do it. Yes, they're going to do it. No, they aren't. Um, number three, so when Tom did that, I was kind of like, okay, I need to reassess my playbook because um, I'm constantly doing a lot of writing. I'm talking to people, et cetera. So number three would be Fed uh, stops raising and cuts as, the real, as, as, as they realize they're creating a bad recession. That would be another one. Next one would be oil supply rises as number one, Russia-Ukraine war ends. Russia returns to the world markets. Um, and then related to number two is China then decides that they're not going to go and take over Taiwan. That throws that thing out the, uh, the window. And then number six would be earnings revision um, bottom. 
and begin to grow. I actually have a thing I'm, I'm tracking, which is looking at the number of upward divisions. And we're about two thirds of the way down now to where we typically go, whether it be 2015, 2011. The, the really bad scenario would be a, a 2007 to nine scenario. And we're a ways away from that. So at least I'm aware of that stuff. And this playbook, it relates to the idea of A, a portfolio, your whole portfolio, or B, an individual pick. The biggest firms, after, you know, covering the biggest firms, whether it be a mutual fund or a hedge fund, they all do this. This is one of the things that they really try and follow. And that's what causes them to have a discipline. And the last piece of that is, is stops. So I was just, updating some some stop stuff I was looking at on my own. And, you know, a stop can either be a fast stop, like, oh, it just hit through this level, I'm gone, end of story. Or it can be an intellectual stop where you need to reassess something. And um, a name that I was looking at as an example, CrowdStrike, I've been wrong on it. But my stop last month, it was it, it only got violated by a little bit. And, and I kind of thought, okay, if tech comes back, I'm going to look really stupid getting rid of that thing. So it was more intellectual and I took the stop down like another $10. So I think that's a big part of um, anyone's process. And I think if you do that, you're less likely to look back a year from now and be like, man, how did I get so much of this stuff wrong? So there you go, George. Thanks, Jeff. Much appreciated. All right, let's move on. Uh, Another good friend, Mr. Klein, Bob Klein. How are you? Good to see you. Please unmute yourself, Bob. What's on your mind? I'm doing great, uh, George. Good day with a three to six month time horizon to pick up some shares of Nope. Uh, as long as your time horizon is not uh, three to six days or three to six weeks, um, you got a, a good, good opportunity today, I think. My, my uh, question for Bob, I love the, Bob, loved your analysis. Um, let me just see if I can summarize it and then, and then phrase a question for you. You know, as the bulls are losing money, uh, their lead narrative, you know, they've been just, just chomping at the bit with their narrative about the Fed policy mistake and that the Fed's uh, blowing things up, et cetera, et cetera. And it's true that, as you guys pointed out, that housing and the tech bubbles are bursting, but those were from very frothy levels. I mean, the the tightening thus far that we've seen from the Fed doesn't appear to be getting to the guts of the real economy enough. You look at, as you guys pointed out, corporate spreads still way too tight. No mutual fund redemptions. Uh, bank loan growth is still running up 10% year over year and pretty steady. Uh, money growth is slowed, but it's still too high relative to how much was printed over the past couple of years. It's way too high. Retail spending still okay. Uh, I, I, di I just don't think conditions are tight enough, as, as you said, Bob, to get inflation down significantly. Uh, and so this, is, this process, I think, is going to take longer than people think. So I agree with the tenor of your initial comments, too, George, on that. And uh, so, so my question is, um, it, rather than this being a game changer in today, with today's CPI announcement, uh, I see this more as a, okay, the seesaw is going back and forth. We've got a, a good data point for the bulls today. And then we, so we're going to, you know, we're, we're seesawing one way. And now we're, we're headed back in the other direction, headed up, rather than being a game changer. So, uh, and, 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 and so I still think that the trend is down, but 
but we you know we could have a further bear market rally here uh, you know on the back of this news uh, today so uh, but but again rather than being a game changer this is going to set the terms for a year in rally huge you know big 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 time change i I don't see it. And uh, so uh, that, that's my question. And then I have a follow up. Yeah, I, I, I think um, like we uh, were constantly getting small incremental pieces of information that um, that are helping answer this question basically of whether um, whether the inflation problem is entrenched or resolved um, in one form or another, and that um, you'll it's it's very easy to uh, it's it's very easy to sort of say well this data point was this way and therefore it's we're in good shape and like it's just like not not how things work like it doesn't work in a straight line in that way by any stretch and so you know um if anything if i i think i look under the hood and i say like odds are that was a a bit of a extreme on the downside print um in the same way honestly if you looked at some of the things that happened in the previous print it seemed like there were some odds and ends that were a little too strong in terms of what was going on with inflation and so you know, I think we're getting incremental information, certainly that in aggregate um, inflation is less bad than it was before. But the core question remains and is unanswered is do we settle at five or do we settle at three? Um, uh, and that's and that, you know, or do we settle above five or do we settle at three, say, with core inflation? And that's the basic that's the basic question. And did we get a piece of information today about that? Like, yeah, on the margin, we got a piece of information about that today. I think the thing that is really important to recognize, sort of taking away from the, from the financial, um, taking away uh, from the macroeconomy and turning your attention to the financial markets, which is like the rise in stock prices is self-defeating i think it's just like really important to recognize that that there are there are going to be limits there are going to be limits in terms of how much a stock rally could plausibly carry on before you have chairman powell in particular but just in general the fed in terms of its its response function before they they basically say no i'm not going to take it and you saw literally in the in the press conference when someone incorrectly suggested that that asset markets were going up and you saw what Powell's response was, which is less about like literally Powell's response and more about that is the reaction function. Like if stocks go up 10 percent, Powell's going to be like, what the hell? Like We're trying to break the back of inflation here. And we've got this massively stimulative dynamic that's going on. And so there's there's just a limit like this can't maybe it goes up. But it just can't go up that much before, frankly, it's just self-defeating to its own to its own rally and engenders an increase in tightening, uh, 
which is necessary to you know defeat the inflation that will emerge from the stimulative behavior into a tight into a tight labor market. And, and Bob, did you Bob Bob Klein, you had a follow up? Yeah. So no, Bob, I think that's that's right on the money. I I think that they haven't been successful enough yet, obviously, at getting asset prices down enough to tighten financial conditions as evidenced by all of the data points you brought up and and I reiterated I, I just don't think they've succeeded enough and so inflation's not coming down as fast as they they hope so um so and my follow up is uh crypto um I I I see kind of like everyone not 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 unique of course uh, for me here but but basically see a run on the bank going on and uh I think that uh, today's bounce, and maybe it'll b- bounce further with the uh, CPI print today. People get more bullish on crypto, thinking, "Oh, the Fed's going to not tighten as much, therefore bullish crypto." But, but, but I see an opportunity here uh, to. I'm, I'm already short crypto, and an opportunity to add add to uh, my shorts in crypto. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Uh Go for it, Bob. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I my my first thought is, um, you know, years ago, uh, I was actually uh, tasked at the old shop to basically uh, figure out <laughs> whether we should trade uh, cryptocurrencies, partially because I, I I was responsible. Uh, one of my jobs was responsible for the foreign exchange book. And I went through it and I looked at it and I researched it. I got a lot of understanding about the whole, how the whole thing worked. And I sat there and I said, this is not a macroeconomic asset. I don't know. I, I can't, no, no macroeconomic framework that I know is applicable here. And, uh, and so, you know, it doesn't seem like an asset that, that I have any edge in trading and therefore, um, therefore it's, you know, doesn't make sense uh, to trade it from a macroeconomic perspective and you know, I've revisited that point several times, and frankly, st- still think the same way about it. Um, that it's not a you know it's not an asset that's meaningfully driven by macroeconomic circumstances. I think kind of indirectly that it was driven by the liquidity cycle, but in a way that like it was also driven by all sorts of crazy other stuff that that I didn't have a particular opinion about. And so uh, my answer to you would be I have no idea what's going to happen to crypto and. And don't think that it's uh, that most of the macroeconomic frameworks that you know you use to trade other assets really apply to it. Just not that helpful answer. But (laughs) well, thanks, George. George, your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I don't know if you were in the room yesterday. We talked about it a little bit, but um, yeah, there's what they should do, and then what they're gonna do. What they're gonna do, I don't know. Everything's so politicized. What they should do is let's let the whole thing collapse. And the reason I say that is it's not systemic risk. You know, financial intermediaries have been forbidden. Uh, uh, they've been, you know, walled off from engaging in this activity. Also, if you just look at Bitcoin, which is maybe half the entire crypto market, and you consider that the non, you know, there's 20 million coins out approximately, this gives it a market value of about 350 billion. The non-hodled supply, the free-floating supply is about 20% or 70 billion. So even if it was that, we'd go to zero, which it won't. But even if it did, seventy billion—that's like nothing. I mean, Meta alone is at a seven hundred billion decline 
in market cap for the last year. So I think it's much to do about nothing. I also think that if the regulators actually wanted to, to put the kibosh on crypto and they had a hard time doing it, I mean, I'm not, it's not clear to me what they want to do. In fact, some of them are on the take and, and, and they're actually pro-crypto. So I'm not saying it's necessarily uh, their desired outcome. But if you wanted to put an end to crypto, shut it down without having to go through the hassle of getting laws passed and it's so politicized and whatnot. This is a perfect way to do it. Just let the thing collapse. Um, and so it's not systemic risk. The amount of wealth that's going to be lost by, you know, uh, the outsiders, the non-hodled, the non-hodled supply is small in the overall scheme of things. And I also think it's very important in terms of um, the extent that, you know, we've had markets run wild with reckless speculation that reintroducing the concept of risk into markets, that they're just not going to have an ever never-ending series of bailouts. I think this is a good step in that direction. So that's what should happen, Bob. What will happen? I don't know. Because you probably remember, uh, maybe you don't, because I was in Clubhouse when I was on my jihad second quarter of uh, last year. You know, we went to the media outlets, we went to the FT, we went to the Wall Street Journal, we gave Jim Cramer the story all about Tether and the whole thing. Everyone just looked the other way. So there's an embedded interest here to kind of keep the Ponzi going. So I don't know what's going to happen, Bob, but by all rights, it, it should it should collapse. And, and, and further, one last thing I, I forgot to mention, you know, we've had this problem whereby um, um, you know, the rules of engagement uh, where, where the fiat system meets the meets crypto and they want an on ramps and off ramps to the banking system. And, you know, that's why the. That's why the Fed and the SEC have been, you know, CFTC have put up this wall here because it's, it's not clear. Um, there's a lot of room for, for malfeasance. And so, um, you know, bailing these guys out for what? So I, I just, I, but analytically, the thing should be allowed to just fail. So I don't know. I, I, I suspect that's the answer you wanted, Bob, but that, that's actually what I believe. I, mean, Bob, I agree. Bob, yeah, yeah, Bob, Bob yeah, that's what should happen. But let me ask you a question. What do you think will happen, Bob? I think that will happen. I, I don't think they're going to bail them out. I, I think for many of the reasons you, you raised, I, I don't think they get bailed out. I think that uh, they're, they're going to let that go. And they just, just as you know, uh, they don't really like crypto generally. Uh, the Fed doesn't. Yellen doesn't. So the powers that be, now there's lobbyists that do, but there's people in Congress that do. But I, I don't think they're going to have... Uh, and then especially what happened with SBF and his circus that he pulled uh, so publicly, I don't think there's going to be much sympathy for these guys. I think they're, they're going to let them hang out to dry. Yeah. I think I'd agree with that. Hey, Gnostic, I saw you raise your hand for a second. Did you have something you wanted to add on that Gnostic? I was just going, just sort of in sort of in addition to the pushing on a string thing, the expanding nature of moral uh, hazard, and the responses to it increase, do, giving increasing, e increasingly highly volatile responses to things from the rescue program. We get the bad side, they push harder, they create the next problem, it's bigger, and just the volatility that it creates is just, just huge. But the moral hazard issue just creates the ability where people jump in, like, like today, hey, markets change, jump in, real now, bang, up goes the market, and yeah. all of a sudden the Fed increases interest rates and we're right back into the whole issue of of moral hazard of re up from rescuing things. Thanks for that. Before we go to Magoo, uh, if anyone has a question, uh, please raise your hand. Um, Bob's uh, 
had a really great perspective. It's a pleasure to have him here. Really privileged, and I've uh, got other, other sharp cookies up here on stage here. Jeff Garbaz, Gnostic Bob Klein. So, if you got a question, please raise your hand. Let's go to Magoo. Uh, Magoo, please unmute yourself. Hey, uh, how's it going, George? Uh, long time no talk. Uh, it's been a hot minute. Uh, obviously, a lot of things have happened in and around markets. Um, obviously, a lot of things happening in crypto this past week. Um, just to kind of address kind of the things that, that, that Bob was talking or what all you guys were talking about crypto, um, the, key, the key distinction is crypto, like in terms of what actually has been happening in the space for the better part of just call it since the pandemic and the massive amounts of liquidity that's been pumped in the system and kind of pushing people out further on the risk curve and the likelihood of them gambling. Um, and at this point it looks like outright criminal activity that has been going on with, uh, FTX, um, with basically lending out customer deposits to a prop, a prop shop essentially to trade, to be a market maker and theoretically probably even trade against their own customer funds. Um, um, but overall, like, uh, obviously I don't agree with the long-term perspective in your guys view on the market. Obviously I, I hold Bitcoin, but obviously in the short term, I still don't even think a lot of people realize because a lot of t- traditional trade five people aren't really immersed in, in, in crypto and the whole ecosystem and how, how it's structured and, and who are the players and what do they do. Um, and I still don't think people have actually fully understand or understood or put a grasp on how big the potential contagion is within the crypto industry. Like you said though, George, it's like, in the end of the day, like the, the nominal values that we're talking about in terms of fiat is kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, a fart in the wind, right? Um, where you're talking about an asset class of, even if you put everything together today, around half a trillion dollars, right? So even on the margin, if, if everything goes to zero, that's not going to affect a lot in terms of like fiat denomination, but the counterparty risk, right? Um, across the whole ecosystem, I, I think in crypto is still pretty um at the end of the day there's still a lot of dead bodies to float to the surface just from this event let alone i think the last time we talked george was the luna incident back in june um i I still don't think the dead bodies have floated to the surface because it looks like alameda research which is the the market maker which sam started um that's when they actually blew up and that's when it looks like fdx started basically engaging in criminal activities to lending the alameda up to $10 billion of user deposits from FTX. Um, so they basically put on a fake face and showing that right. they were strong and in reality they right. weren't. So, yeah, so, so Magoo, if I, if I, I don't mean to be aggressive and interrupt you, but is there a question you have for Bob or something? Cause I, I don't want this room to just devolve into a, a crypto discussion. We generally try to stay away from crypto because people are very polarized. The bulls aren't going to convince the bears and the bears aren't going to be convinced. Yeah, I know. It's, oh. Yeah, I know. That's why I didn't even yeah. interrupt before so, that, that conversation. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so, so do you have a question for Bob? Yeah. So yeah. I guess at the end of the day, like the S and P or the NASDAQ being up six or seven or 5% today, respective, respectively, how do a lot of people look at this and basically look historically and say, um, when has in a bull market market and general indices went up this much, right? Um, when in reality, the only time this happens historically uh, is in a bear market and how I don't want to say desperate, but how quick bulls are back to trying to reclaim that this is a bull market. 
Um, and what do you think their thought process is with that, seeing how big of a, a jump today we've seen in general markets? Well, I think the, the biggest thing that it highlights in my mind is um, is in the macroeconomic tightening cycle and the and the sort of business cycle tightening dynamic. If you, I don't know if you were on at the at the beginning when I was laying that general picture out, but like conditions, we have not gotten that far into the tightening cycle, all things considered. And one of the ways I think that we are seeing that is just how in terms of the in terms of the financial markets is just how liquid uh the 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 bull flow is when you know there's a spark to move it in that direction um and this is a this is less like uh data driven you know adding up all the players and thinking about all their flows and more just seeing you know having been in markets for 25 years or something like that, having, you know, seeing these sorts of dynamics, they feel a lot like early in a, a, a tightening cycle, you know, still liquid, still the ability to leverage pretty easily, still relatively easy money. And so the ability to sort of move quickly in response to incrementally bullish news, you know, feels that way, particularly in the context of the fact that, like, we had this five percent or whatever upside move it, it wasn't like we went down 10 or 15 percent and then had this had a five percent upside move where it was basically like closing out shorts this this upside move came on the heels of uh you know a, basically i don't know 40 days of of up moves right and so that all indicates that we are that it's all still too easy the money is still too easy uh, to effectively constrain the economy and what's necessary to drive demand enough, you know, drive demand down to break the back of the inflationary cycle. We're in the second inning. I think it's a good indication that we're in the second inning of this market. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Magoo. All right, let's go on to uh, Rob, my good friend Rob, and then we're going to go to Edge uh, Alpha. Rob, good to see you. Please unmute yourself. Hey, thank you, George and Bob. Uh, thanks for everything you're saying. Uh, follow you. And yeah, George's right. You're a great follow. And uh, I, I love them talking to two guys uh, here, uh, George and Bob, who are uh, very familiar with the hedge fund space. Uh, I've been a hedge investor for I don't know, 25 years, but I've never actually run a hedge fund, ironically, just mutual funds. But um, I was thinking about famous hedge fund manager who I'm guessing both of you know today. And, and this kind of leads to my question. So the person I was thinking about was uh, the late Julian Robertson, who actually passed away just a few months ago. And uh, back when I was a pup at DLJ uh, back in the late 90s, I mean, he he was, you know, the god of hedge fund managers. He'd been up 31 percent a year from 1980 to 1998. Well, then what happened? the end of the dot-com uh, bubble, uh, and he decided to close his fund, uh, which was not doing very well for a couple of years uh, because things got just insane. Um, and he closed the fund in March of 2000, right as the bubble peaked and burst. And I couldn't help but think about Julian Robertson today because I, I swear 
we're going through the exact same thing right now. And so that leads me to my questions, uh, really for, for anyone, uh, but especially for Bob and, and, and George, if you'd like to reply. Uh, two things going through my mind right now, especially after a day like this. Uh, price discovery. Is there any price discovery left? Or is this just everything goes up the same, everything goes down the same, and if that's the case, you might as well pick just any one asset and decide you know, how much you're going to be long uh, versus being in cash. Uh, the related question, because maybe this is what's causing the first one, is liquidity. Um, I was a little late to this uh, space, so I don't know if you guys covered liquidity, but uh, is, is it vanishing to such a degree that we're going to be living with this kind of the way Julian Robertson did in frustration at the tail end of his uh, sort of public hedge fund career. Uh, I look forward to your answers. Well, I, I think um, I, the overall dynamic in terms of uh, is there a price discovery? Like I think, I think what we're seeing, what we're seeing is one, big driver of the financial markets that's moving people around in a day-to-day basis, which is just basically, is the Fed going to tighten or are they going to, you know, are they going to tighten more or less is probably Mm -hmm. a better way to describe it. And that's, that's like jerking the market around and kind of all the assets are falling in line with them. Although mostly what it is is assets go up one day and all assets go down the other day, you know, the next day. And I think one of the things that, um, from an investor's perspective, in these sorts of times, what you really have to do is you have to sit there and say, that is one singular bet, uh, whether you know the Fed's going to tighten or, or ease more, it's a single bet. And it's one that necessarily, you might be, you know, like any bet, you're like 60-40 on or 55-45 on, and that it's important to not just look at that one bet, but also look at a series of different bets in addition to that one bet to help build a diversified portfolio that's going to be more reliable. And so whether that's diffs across assets, you know, whether that's diffs in terms of what you think stocks versus bonds or commodities versus bonds or commodities versus stocks, all of those different opportunities, or whether it's, you know, interest, you know, between sector, long and short alpha, things like that. Like this is, this dynamic is like putting a lot of onus on finding uncorrelated, lowly correlated or negatively correlated positions from that one big position, which like, you know, you might or might not get right. Right. And I, I think that's when I, I, I hear you talk about the price discovery thing. I think more like one big bet. And it seems like too often people are putting on that one big bet, probably even more than they totally realize given how confident they are in that one big bet. Um, in terms of the positions that they're holding, so you know it's a it's it's a tough time to generate alpha because you gotta you gotta find it in other places. Uh, because uh, what other I you know I, I I have to say I mean I scour the markets through I mean literally hundreds of ETFs, many different slices of the market, and uh, and I'm a chartist at heart. All the charts look the same, up and down and up and down, and. Uh, I mean, yeah, you can adapt to that. Uh, you, you, know, you just basically focus on on what your equity allocation is and be you know long flat or long cash. Uh, but uh, 
I guess what I'm wondering, uh, uh, folks, uh, anybody else who wants to opine on this, uh, kind of like Julian Robertson did uh, in early 20, uh, 2000, how long is this going to go? Or is this the stock? Is this investing in the stock market now? Is this the era where, and a long era, where the Fed, whatever the Fed is doing and whatever they're promoting on, you know, the Cartoon Network, as George affectionately calls it, uh, that's all that people care about and everything becomes binary. And that to me would be, well, I mean, it would be disappointing. It's certainly more challenging. And frankly, it would be a little heartbreaking for those of us who have made a career out of managing money based on something more than you know, what does Powell say today? Yeah. So, so, um, Rob, you you raise a really good question and I'm trying to find the chart that I saw last few days. I don't know if it was some Cantor or who had it up. I'll find it. I'll put it up. I'll put it on my feed. It showed correlations. And I just, I just saw this yesterday and it made the point. The correlations are as high now as any time since March of two, March of uh, 2020. So to your point, it's all about the Fed. It, 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 you know, we had the everything bubble. We're not having the everything bear market. And yeah, some things going to go up, go down up you know, more than others, depending on how far you're on the risk curve and the duration, all that kind of stuff. But no, it's it's. I'm sorry to say, you put your finger on it, and um, you know, and I think we're all we're all held hostage uh, in that car right now. So. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I can't give you a better answer, but I, I, I'm with you, sure. as implied by your question. I, uh, I, I do think that there's a, and, and, you know, depending on what scope of experience you have and things like that, like there are ways to, there are, you can look to other macro asset markets to try and find some of those things that, you know, everyone, all the, all these different assets have slightly different uh, you know that they they all maybe in the tiny wiggles or in the day to day wiggles a little bit minute to minute wiggles have a connection with that one big bet, but over time are moving in directions that are opposite that. So you know, as an example, uh, if you just look at you know oil, gold, stocks, and long dated bonds, mm-hmm. those assets in any point in time, look like they all trade together. Like, you know, if you open the Bloomberg up at five o'clock in the morning, when you get up, you kind of say, Oh, these all seem like they're moving together. But like, that's definitely not true over the course of the year where, you know, gold's down a little bit. Commodities are doing pretty well. Bonds are totally in terrible shape and stocks are down, but not down that much. Right. And, and, and then credit probably, you know, credit spreads, credit spreads to be clear also another one of those and so part of the you know that's an example that's a five asset portfolio where each one of those different assets has different sensitivities to the macroeconomic dynamics that we're seeing the inflation dynamics we're seeing and different sensitivities to the tightening cycle and to the growth dynamic where a portfolio of those let's say you know short the bonds a little bit of gold a little bit of credit spreads a little mm-hmm. bit, you know, some some commo- commodities, more commodities in there. Like, you know, you could put together a portfolio that's that maybe not in any one day is going to look all that divergent from the 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 one big bet, but uh, but over time will look divergent from the one big bet, um, and that's kind of where you have to go. And then, of course, there's lots of dips 
under that. Like, I, I mean, I don't know how much you're, you're into like currency markets. I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities like cross EM currency markets yeah. where you can really strip out the one big bet sensitivities like Latin Americans versus the East Asians and the dynamic dynamics that are going on there. Um, uh, you know, there's 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 stuff in that space that is, I think, interesting uh, if you you sort of open your aperture in terms of all the different assets that you could that you could use. But I mean, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough, uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a tough dynamic right. to trade. If the dollar breaks, uh, maybe maybe it makes yeah. things more interesting. At the end of the day, uh, it's the last last comment I would make is. You know, I'm used to running kind of long and short, you know, long, long, long equity ETFs, uh, long inverse ETFs. And I have to tell you, when I look at making one percent a quarter uh, in short term bonds, uh, it makes me wonder if the short side of the market is going to be as fruitful as it was before. Um, And I guess the answer is only when this chaotic period ends. Right. Thanks for that. Thanks for that, Rob. Okay, let's let's move ahead now. Uh, Edge has been waiting. Edge, please unmute yourself. Hi, guys. Uh, firstly, thank you so much. It, it's incredible to have access to, uh, you know, imagine all these people in a meeting room, like <laughs> it would be an incredible meeting room. So thank you so much. Uh, yeah. Before I make my central point, I want to caveat it with saying that, uh, you know, understood that market timing is really hard. Understood that you, know, you need a catalyst for like a large move such as you did today. And also understood the point that Bob Elliott made of uh, uh, there's still being easy money in the market where like uh, basically a non-event like today's CPI report, uh, one data point led to a move like we saw today, right? But I, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's feeling like this is setting up to be, if you, if you play your cards right and if you wait your time, an incredible shorting opportunity again. You know the kinds that have been presenting themselves for the last uh, eight nine months or so. So, yeah, I just want to hear uh, the room's uh, Bob's and uh, everyone's reaction to this. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Well, I mean, I think the the main the main thing that comes to my mind about it is that um, is this idea that that the stock rally is uh, self defeating, um, you know, most likely self defeating, uh, and that. You know, as as it goes, you know, to the extent that it goes higher and higher, um, and similarly to the extent that bond yields go lower and lower, it becomes more and more attractive to basically, you know, uh, start to start to uh, to bet with the Fed, so to speak, who is naturally as a function of their of their uh reaction function like going to put a lid on the upside of uh of markets and so i think the the key the key thing as an investor in this sort of in that sort of dynamic is you've got to be very sensitive to your risk controls and risk taking while you're doing that because you can get hung out to dry if you use all of your dry powder on, you know, uh, on selling at 3,800 versus, you know, 4,200. Um, 
because you know, like forty two hundred, the Fed's not going to let the stocks go up above forty two hundred. You know, I mean, just I, maybe it's that precise number or not. Anyway, something like that. Like so, so you got it, but it could get there, right? We could see numbers like that, forty two hundred forty. You know, it could, it could, with the right comp, you know, another disinflationary print that maybe starts to seep in or whatever, and so like that. That you got to be prepared for that when you're navigating through this environment. Don't don't use all your your short side dry powder early. Uh, otherwise, you'll be caught. Good question. Um, hey Bob, one thing we haven't talked about so far, and you know every cycle's different. History rhymes, doesn't repeat itself. Um, your views on energy and. You know, we're in an environment where um, excess capacity for uh, oil production is much you know, minuscule compared to the past for all the reasons we know, ESG and all the rest. But how does, um, what's different about energy this time around the truck, how does that inform your thought process as to how it might be different as compared to our past cycles? Well, I think, I think energy is a, uh, is a really interesting um it's an interesting bet because it's uh, it's got uh, uh, long uh, positions in energy are have nice uh, you know nice a nice risk return profile uh, in terms of the in, in terms of the upside uh, skew in the event of either inflation coming in better than next you know inflation going higher or the Fed being easier that combination of things. Uh, makes energy like an attractive uh, long positions in energy being attractive uh, counterparts to more conservative positions or short positions in stocks and bonds. Um, and so, and the reason why that is, I mean, for the reasons that at some level are, are somewhat known in the sense of like strategically, you've got a situation where you've had, interestingly, despite an era of cheap money, there has been very little investment in real assets. There was a whole lot of investment in garbage technology and crypto things, and no one decided to put any money into building physical infrastructure to take stuff out of the ground. And so there's basically no capacity there, whether it's energy or, or, or industrial commodities. Um, and so, you know, 10 years, 10 plus years of underinvestment with continued you know, moderate growth in the macro economy and the global economy means that everything's real tight. Not there's a little some nuances between individual ones, but basically you have quite a tight, tight market in the demand for physical commodities uh, in a high nominal growth environment, which is very positive for commodities. It's a very positive combination of things for commodities combined with that, that, um, that dynamic, which is the the portfolio construction dynamic, which is it's diversifying and, and negatively correlated to some of the other positions that you you know that we've talked about, makes for you know I, I think it's a it either oil or industrial commodities seem uh, seem pretty pretty good um, pretty good bets, and I think I, I would point to the. I really like that uh, that day where China had the fake news about uh, ending COVID zero, um, not not because 
yeah, I mean, it was fake. It was seemed to be mostly fake news. So it's not like it was incrementally informative. But what was really neat to see about that moment was how the asset markets responded and just seeing that sensitivity of the commodity side to slight, like slightly better than, than previously expected growth expectations created that incredible squeeze, long side squeeze in commodities, I think was a great insight into just how tight those markets are uh, and how good they are as, as complementary bets to uh, uh, a more general bearish portfolio. Hey, apropos of that, I think you mentioned it a little bit early on in the conversation, um, gold. Um, if we get a scenario where the Fed kind of, you know, doesn't, uh, they don't keep the pace up, they want to cheat a little bit or slack off. I mean, is gold, I mean, you, 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 you know, in, in, in real rates start to go down further. I mean, that's not going to get them to the ultimate tightening they need. You and I were talking about the topic of conversation, but just watching the price action of gold, what it's doing in response to, you know, the dollar's been selling off here. Rates have been coming off. What does that add up in your mind uh, with respect to your outlook for the gold price? Yeah, so I think gold, when you think about gold, it really is, it's two, it's got two drivers. It's non-interest-bearing uh, money, uh, which it trades against interest-bearing money. And so to the extent that interest-bearing money has higher interest rates, it trades negative. You know, it's a, it's a negative hit to it. It is also a protection of real purchasing power uh, in somewhere between moderately and very extreme circumstances. I think when you look at how gold has done through the course of this year, you know, a lot of people mocking people have been like, well, inflation's up and how the hell is your gold doing? You know, and you say, well, it's complicated. And in that context, I don't think gold has done that bad a job. And I emphasize two, two different outcomes. First of all, Gold has been has seen a modest loss in dollar terms in an economy where there was basically the largest real real right tightening of any of the economies in the in the world in response to the inflationary pressures. If you go and you were sitting in the UK or Germany or Australia or Japan or Canada, right, where their tightening cycles have not nearly been as significant relative to inflation as it has been in the U.S., gold is up in those markets when stocks are down. And it's doing exactly what you expect it to do. And that is, that's very, very important to consider because maybe the Fed will continue to follow the path that we've seen and be very tight. And even then, like gold's done pretty well, all things considered. It's done a lot better, a whole hell of a lot better than bonds, right? <laughs> so maybe... Yeah. We'll, we'll go down that path, but maybe we won't, as you say, George, maybe we won't go down that path. And then for damn sure you want gold in your portfolio uh, in that sort of path and that sort of outcome. And so I think I think like people aren't exploring the range of outcomes that are plausible and seeing gold in that context and seeing how it is a really complementary asset to uh, those inflationary upside scenarios as well. As, I mean, it is beneficial in deflationary environments, but that's less of a relevant concept right now. 
and seeing how it really is a much better diversifier than bonds in their portfolio right now. Like it, anyway, I could riff on gold for a while, but uh, that gives you the gist of what I'm saying. That, that, that's great. Hey, great. Thanks. hey George, I just wanted to add, yeah. uh, chime in real quick on that. I agree with everything Bob said, said very well. And I think that gold is, as I think most in this room realize, is catching a bid in addition to the dollar by crypto's weakness. And people can are, are seeing some of the flaws in the ecosystem, the crypto in, e- ecosystem versus gold. And, and I think gold really is, is standing apart right now and, and showing its, its, its metal, although you know, certainly could pull back given the, the big run-up it's had. But I think it's going to gain, gain more <clears throat> adherence as, as crypto continues to stumble. Thanks for that, Bob. Appreciate it. All right, a couple more uh, uh, speakers, and I think we might close room at six thirty. Um, we're going to go to Prometheus and then uh, Bondoc. Prometheus, uh, please unmute yourself. The floor is yours. Prometheus. Hey guys, thanks for doing this. Um, so my question's for Bob. Um, Bob, I I know you spend a lot of time looking at FX, and something kind of anecdotally that I've noticed. So. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm actually butchering the, the real correlation numbers, but what we've seen is that, you know, during these kind of disinflationary days where, you know, you have equities and bonds catch a bid, which they haven't, you know, over the course of the year, really, you've seen kind of um, DXY, which is just, you know, the majors, you know, do the opposite. And I'm wondering if you kind of have any insight on what is driving that flow and kind of what's working there i mean i think the broad you know idea has always been that dollar's been a little bit more risk off and it you know works alongside treasury so i'm I'm just wondering what you think are driving kind of those correlations if you have any insights i think the the i mean the biggest thing that's driving the markets today is this basic question of how much is the Fed going to tighten or you know, on the margin, how much is the Fed tightening or not tightening? Um, and that um, and that what we're seeing in the currency markets is frankly just like a, a, another reflection of that. And that the, the ma- given that the major uncertainty is basically how much is the, the Fed going to tighten or not with the one big bet, it just then flows into all these other asset markets uh, in, in that way, in the sense of like, basically all assets in the world are trading relative to the dollar, to dollar cash, I should say, dollar cash. And so when we think dollar cash is going to go up in value uh, or become more valuable or scarce, everything goes down, including foreign currencies. And to the extent that we think that dollar cash is going to be cheapened, which is essentially what people's view was today, then all assets in the world go in the other direction. I think it's a different, it's, it's actually, it's typically, this is not typically what drives the, the asset dollar correlation that you often see uh, in the financial markets, which I think is more around the fact that the dollar is the predominant uh, leveraging or deleveraging currency for the purchase or sale of risky assets, many of which are, you know, 
you know, some of which are in the U.S. and some of which are global. I don't think that's really what's going on here. I think it's more of a monetary policy story than a leveraging deleveraging story, which is typically what drives that that correlation. Uh, so, you know, unfortunately, it ends up being part of the one big bet. Uh, and I think that's the currency markets are nice uh, if you roll up your sleeves and really get into them um, for for. For, for context, that that was I mean I'm, that that is sort of my area of specialty uh, in in uh, the macro spaces in currencies and, and running Bridgewater's currency book for a long time, but um, but you know I think there's a really lots of interesting cross currents going on relative positions that could be put on in this in this period where in the currency markets uh, in this period where uh, where there is you know. Other risky assets do seem to be driven by the one big, one big bet. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate that. All right, two more questions. I'm going to call it a night. Uh, we're going to go to uh, Bondock, and then we're going to finish with AEL. Hey, um, thanks, guys. Go for it. Um, yes, thanks, and great insights about gold. I always wonder. My question is about the long bond, aka the 30-year Treasury, because you know, you, I, I like how you said like gold always plays in that. Uh, a place in your portfolio and my question is shouldn't bonds place an equal weight in your portfolio because bonds and gold actually perform similarly except in risk off events where yields collapse and, and equities follow yields down and gold tends to get liquidated and it provides a hedge with positive carry so isn't bonds especially at four percent because historically it's very high if you look at the declining secular trend of bonds over the past 50 years isn't it a great opportunity to buy the long bond right now at four no, percent? Bob, Bob, let me. I'll, yeah, Bob, I'll I'll, I'll I'll take that one. Um, no, I'm actually. I don't think you're being adequately comp- compensated at all uh, for the risk in bonds. Looking at where uh, uh, inflation is, both present inflation and, and also, my, in my view, I think Bob probably shares the view, the speed, the extent to which inflation is going to come down in the next twelve to twenty-four months. I think real rates are, are, are not particularly attractive, attractive where they've been last few years. But if you zoom out a little bit, as are, no, they're not. And then furthermore, if you just look at supply and demand, um, you know, you're going to be a bit, see a big increase in bond issuance um, from the U.S. government uh, going forward. Um, uh, and, and at the same time, um, you see foreign central banks dial back the purchases of, 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 of bonds. In fact, they've been sellers. Um, the government, you know, we go from QE to QT. Uh, so no, I, I actually do not like bonds at all. I, I think they're a disaster. George, can I follow up on what you just said? Well, I, actually, I'd rather not because I'm, <laughs> I'm hungry. I well, want to eat dinner. The only <laughs> reason I'm saying is, if you, if, if you, I'm not buying bonds for the coupon though. I'm buying it because when the yield drops from four percent to like one percent, you make eighty percent return during a market yeah, 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 but I, but I, I think, I think implicit in what I was saying is the chance of bond yields going from four percent to the chance of bond yields going down meaningfully, in my view, are um, not particularly high. I mean, we get a big recession, yes. But I think, um, you know, uh, right now it's 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 it, it, it's debatable given where inflation is. I mean, yeah, if you want to think the world's coming to an end and it's all going to have a depression and rates are fine. But no, I, I just I just don't think bonds are interesting. Um, I think um, one of the things I'll just I'll, uh, I'll I'll just add on to to what you just said, George, is I have, you know, our, our process that we use to infer what what hedge fund managers are doing um, 
I've been consistently impressed through the course of this year at how disciplined hedge fund managers have been being sure bonds. Um, just each step of the way. And even today we see, you know, uh, we see basically that they've, they've cut their bond position, their short bond positions a little bit relative to the peak, but like in general, you know, they've, they have, uh, they've gotten the joke pretty well through the course of this, uh, through the course of this cycle. And still, even with the yield rise that has occurred so far, you know, they're still holding positions that are probably, I don't know, like half the size they were at max, but still, you know, that's a, that's a position that is, uh, an important position in the context of their overall portfolio. 100%. Okay, we're going to finish with uh, my good friend AELB, always insightful. AELB, the floor is yours. Please unmute yourself. Hey, George, good evening, and thank you very much for letting me contribute to this space. Bob, I, I just want to have, I mean, I just I just would like to hear your feedback on this uh, scenario. So uh, right now we have an inflation, inflation rate running at 7.7%, right? Let's say Fed get, is able to get the Fed funds rate to 5%, and they're able to you know, to, to, to leave it at that level for about, for about a year. And inflation drops to 5% and stays there for, say, the next three years. So we have Fed funds rate on average between 4.55% and inflation at around the same level. Wouldn't you believe that, that I mean, and don't, make it, don't get me wrong, I mean the grizzly camp, not the bear camp. I mean, I think that this, we have a lot of way to go there. But uh, wouldn't you think that, this would be the best thing that could possibly happen for this economy because effectively you're going to wipe out a good portion of the unproductive debt. You allow wages to catch up. And at the same time, you're going to have higher rate, higher positive interest rates. So this is going to incentivize, well, hopefully investment in productive things. Wouldn't that be, I mean, I'm starting to believe this is sort of the scenario they're trying to achieve. What do you think? Well, I, I think it's um, I think it's a it's a pretty useful scenario to 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 think about. Um, I'm not sure I'm not sure I would necessarily agree that it is the scenario that they are trying to achieve. They being, I think, the Federal Reserve. I you know my guess is more likely than not their interest is to bring inflation towards you know towards the two percent target um but they may not for a variety of reasons be able to do that and so um it's possible we see what you're saying i think one of the challenges of what you're saying if you look back through history is that it's pretty rare through time to hold inflation consistently at say five or six percent in an economy um, and the reason why that is, is that there's, you know, somewhat natural self-reinforcing dynamics that uh, that often, you know, begin to cause instability in the inflation. And when I say instability, mostly I mean that begins to create a self-reinforcing rise in, in inflation at, at, at that sort of five to six percent range. That's why that's why this is, you know, such a sensitive place that we're in in terms of the, the emergence of the inflation psychology. And so my my answer to what you're you know my my thought on what you're saying is that um, I think you know could we would it be a 
pretty decent outcome if we could achieve 5% inflation and have a relatively flat yield curve or maybe a little bit of steepening to finance the bonds uh, and, uh, you know, some positive, you know, some positive rates to help constrain, you know, create some inflation, some, some investment discipline and inflate away the debts. And that would be a pretty good outcome. I just, I think it's a pretty, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard to achieve consistent, stable 5% inflation. That's, that's the challenge with it. Um, and so more likely what you'd see if that was sort of the path that was chosen is the, is a, a second rise, right? We've gone from inflation in the sevens and eights down to inflation in the fives. And then we get the second rise of inflation uh, subsequent, uh, which, you know, is the, is the, 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 the two humped camel of inflation or whatever, which is the real, you know, that's the real challenge that we don't peak at nine or 10 round two. It really starts to become embedded and we peak, you know, well above that in a way that's very disruptive, which is the tale of not just the U S in the seventies, but also many other inflationary cycles. You see basically the same dynamic, which is the, is the, you know, not being quite tight enough, Inflation starts to seep in and you get the, you know, the second rise in inflation, which is the killer rise in inflation, whether it's for the, you know, the economy or bond market or the currency market, et cetera. That's terrific. So hopefully hopefully that's helpful there. (laughs) Absolutely. And do you even answer my follow-up question? Thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for asking. Hey, Bob, this has been awesome. Um, I hope. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. No, this has been really great. Really, really enjoy your commentary and got some smart cookies in with good questions. And I always find I learn a lot from the audience as well. So I hope you'll uh, hope you enjoyed it and I hope you'll consider coming back again in the future. It's, it's great. It's great listening to you. And I look forward to meeting you. Uh, we spoke the other day. We're geographically not too far apart. At any rate, I want to thank everyone for coming tonight. It's been awesome. A great room. Uh, we'll do it again next week. Uh, stay safe out there. All right. Good night, everybody. Take care. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.